Today's show is being brought to you by Cause Marketing Forum and SelfishGiving.com. And we want to thank our sponsor, 1BillionShirts.org. Custom t-shirts that help others. Print with them, and 25 cents from every t-shirt benefits a good cause. And remember, you can find Cause Talk Radio on Stitcher Smart Radio as well as iTunes. Leave us a comment at either one of those platforms, and we'll send you a Cause Talk Radio t-shirt. Hi, everyone. This is Joe Waters, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Cause Talk Radio. I'm, of course, on the line with my favorite co-host, Megan Strand. Hey, Megan. Hey, favorite and only. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you were the only one who took the job, you know what I mean? But I put, when I put out the worldwide application uh, for this job, you were the only one Because I was destined. Applied. I was destined. I know, I know. It really is. You love the punishment anyway. So, I do. But thank you for being here. It's always exciting to be on another show. And I am excited about today's uh, guest. He's a New Yorker, but he's in San Francisco today. On the line, we have Adam Braun, who is the founder of Pencils of Promise. And Adam has a new book out called The Promise of a Pencil. And all the money from that is going to his organization, Pencils of Promise. Hey, Adam, how's it going? Hey, I'm doing well. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for being on. You know, Adam, I have to tell you, and I'm going to give you a second here to to tell us about your organization uh, for those listeners that may not have heard of it. But when I mentioned it to my accountant wife, she thought for sure it must have to do with accountants <laughs> because accountants are dedicated to their pencils, right? Wow, that's you know, have a you? Good I never even thought about that. Never even I've thought about that. You could like sell pocket protectors, you know? I know, I know. So yeah, true. yeah. Yeah, you know, she's in the middle. She's in the middle of busy season with taxes and stuff like that. And she said, "Pencils of promise. That's what it's all about, you know." So, uh, yeah, but yeah. I know that's. And I said, I said, "Hun, the the organization has nothing to do with accountants, thankfully, you know." So, and uh, but why don't you tell our listeners what uh, Pencils of Promise is all about? And mention your new book too. Sure. So. Um... You know, I, I grew up uh, in Connecticut. I was born in New York, but uh, became really interested in finance at an early age. Just mm-hmm. because we wanted to make a bunch of money, and uh, you know, I always like collected basketball cards and realized that you could trade from Scottie Pippen up to Karl Malone to one day get Michael Jordan. And picking stocks sounded pretty similar. Mm-hmm. So uh, I started uh, working in a hedge fund when I was 16, fun times 19, etc., and was kind of on a fast track to have this great career on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was in college, just became um, really interested in getting outside of my comfort zone, uh, which mm-hmm. I think is just important for people to help discover not what you are on, on paper, but really who you are internally. And went on this program called Semester C, had a series of life-altering experiences, the most powerful of which was uh, traveling through uh, India at one point and uh, just seeing poverty I'd never even thought existed and finding this boy who was begging on the streets and asking him if he could have anything in the world, what would he want most? Because they asked one child per country that question. And uh, his answer was a pencil. Mm. So I just, uh, I gave him my pencil and he just lit up and I recognized that two things. One, there's about 57 million children currently, back then it was even more, uh, who do not have access to any type of education. Uh, and then secondly, that uh, oftentimes if, if you're not someone of fame or, or, you know, power or wealth, you're told you can't make a difference in others' lives. And even in that small giving one child one pencil could actually make a meaningful difference. And so I ended up uh, traveling with pens and pencils and passing them out while backpacking through like 40 or 50 countries in subsequent years. 
came back, worked at um, Bain uh, as a management consultant to really learn how best-in-class businesses were built. And then he got the itch um, about mm-hmm. five years ago to start and just try something. And my big idea was to build one school and dedicate it to my grandmother um, mm-hmm. and create one school in the developing world and put 25 bucks in a bank account, hoping to build one school. And now five years later, uh, Pencils of Promise, the organization that I started, is, is broken ground in more than 200 schools globally wow. with over 20,000 students a day learning in our classrooms. Um, and so I wrote this book called The Promise of a Pencil, How an Ordinary Person Can Create Extraordinary Change to really not only tell the story of going from 25 bucks to 200 schools as, as a young person, but um, much more importantly, to provide the, the guiding steps uh, that at least I had identified to creating a life of both success and significance, because I really genuinely believe that people can have both. Well, let's let's talk about that just a little bit. I mean, and of course, we want everyone to go buy your book. However, give us sort of the Cliff Notes version of some of those steps. How did you turn $25 into 200 schools? I mean, that seems like a pretty tall order. So give us give us a Cliff Notes version of a couple of those more important steps. Sure. So, so what I realized when, when I went out to write was that um, I think people just consume media very differently today, and, and I'm certainly one of them. So you know, we want our 140-character statement um, that's, you know, quick and quotable and, and relevant, and then we want kind of the blurb version, and we want the whole thing. So the book is organized into 30 short chapters, every one of which is titled with what I call a mantra. And mm-hmm. I really use mantras, just these, these short, pithy, powerful statements that really kind of act as guideposts when I'm making heavy decisions in my life over that three- or six-month period. And they, to some degree, they're like the essential truths mm-hmm. that I've it's kind of found to be really uh, meaningful. And so uh, a couple of those that I can share, I mean, the book has 30, but um, you know, one, of, one of the early ones is that uh, big dreams start with small and reasonable acts. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, they just assume, you know, I have to have a million dollars in a bank account. Or I have to have this famous investor behind me, or, um, you know, I have to have uh, prestige. But the truth is a lot of these things that, that you now think of in retrospect as, as world changing, they began very humbly and with a small and reasonable step. And so mine was $25 in a bank account. Mm -hmm. Five years later, somebody looked at Pencil of Promise and said, oh, yeah, if you want to start this, you should put $25 in a bank account. They would say you're crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, They would say you have to start with much more. But but that's one of the things is you just have to move forward. You have to take some tangible act, Mm -hmm. uh, even if it seems unreasonable. And that's one. A a second one um, is that vulnerability is vital. Uh, it's actually when you admit what you're weak at uh, that you're able to bolster those weaknesses into your greatest strengths. And that mm-hmm. uh, is a chapter about my uh, reluctance to fundraise. I really didn't like asking anyone for money, and so mm-hmm. I didn't. We were growing, and, and, and for about three and a half years, I never made an outright ask. I would just kind of convey the vision for the organization, explain the momentum that we had, and then you know, kind of fingers crossed, hope that they decide to commit to, to support us. But we got to a size where I realized, you know, something for us to keep growing at the rate that we're hoping to accelerate, um, I need to step up here and, and actually learn to ask people for money. Yep. And the only way I could do that was by openly admitting that I was flawed and that I was mm-hmm. bad at it and that I was scared of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was amazing to watch how by doing that, uh, my board of directors, people I was closest to, they all deeply invested in my well-being rather than running for the hills. No, I bet, Adam, now that you're the type of person that could ask anyone for money at any time. Uh, I mean, I'm definitely a lot more comfortable with it. And part of that was understanding the the psychology and that, you know, I used to feel like I was asking for myself, Mm. my organization. And if they said no, I felt like they were rejecting me personally. And and what I learned through 
know, going through truthfully a fundraising course um, run by one of the world's leading experts on it was that I'm in no way, shape, or form asking for myself. I'm asking for the kids that we educate. Um, and when you take your, your own ego out of the equation, it changes from a sense of obligation to actually a, a sense of um, feeling honored. Like, I'm yeah. honored. it's an honor for me to ask on their behalf. Yeah, and people know, and you know what's good too, Adam, is when you start asking like that too, you realize that people know that. You know what I mean? That you're not yeah. asking for yourself. It's like this this obstacle that we create in our own head, isn't it? You know yeah. that that we feel yeah. like we can't do it, and other people are like, "No big deal. I understand." You know, people ask me for money all the time, and uh, right. so that doesn't become right. a roadmap. You know what? I'm kind of you know what I'm really impressed, Adam, by what you've done though, uh, with your organization is. You could have done anything with your life. Well, I mean, one, I, I, I appreciate it, but, but when no. I hear a statement like that, my reaction is everybody can do anything with their no. life. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, I was, I was, I was probably well positioned to go yeah. in and make a lot of money. And, and that's yeah. what I think a lot of people mistake with mm-hmm. suddenly you can go do anything just because you have the ability to go and make a lot of money. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I was at, at, at Bain, um, obviously, I mean, it's a great firm, so I had a good salary, but, you know, I was getting calls from headhunters left and right because they come mm-hmm. after second years, and they know that they can attract you, and at least at, at the time, given the financial environment, it was pretty good yeah. before the kind of crash of 08. But, um, you know, we were getting calls. I was 24, and, and we were getting job offers that we knew were $250,000 in, in first-year compensation. Mm-hmm. And so it's very illogical to say no to that and say, no, I'm going to start an organization <laughs> yeah. that is by um, regu- regulatory restrictions of 501c3 nonprofit mm-hmm. um, with $25. But the truth is I've never viewed this space with that phrase nonprofit. I don't think it, I think it's the wrong term. I think we should refer to it as for purpose. Yeah. Because that was very much. Oh, that's good. By, no, I think, it's, by, you know, uh, in, you know, I, Adam, I think you really hit on something on the head there, though, when you talk about that, too, is like, you know, that that image of nonprofit, the connotation with that is just not a strong one anymore. And, you know, it's interesting. Right. I was reading an interview uh, last week um, that uh, Charlie Rose did with Larry Page or out at Google. And in Larry Page said, I'll give away. I think I'm going to. I want to give my all my billions away to a company that yeah. can solve problems, not necessarily a nonprofit. nonprofit yeah. And I think that puts all nonprofits, you know, gives them a wake up call and says, look, you know, you have to be having some type of impact. You have to be solving problems because the entrepreneurs yeah. of today are going to demand a lot more. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, you know, I think just nonprofit is a. It's a tax status. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's all it really stands for. What's yeah, much more well important said. to me, and, and, and I've started to write about it a lot and talk about it openly, is you know I think for a long time we evaluated companies because um, you know the kind of pervasive currency of the day was was cash, mm-hmm. and so you know you needed cash to create a decent quality of life for yourself, and so we thought about companies in terms of nonprofit or for profit. But I think mm-hmm. it's the second axis altogether that's rising currently, which I, I call the purpose axis. And it's basically that companies will separately be evaluated on for purpose or non-purpose. Are you solving a critical issue within society that increases the benefit and utility of others? Mm-hmm. And you know, you can be a non-profit and also non-purpose. I mean, if you're not yeah. doing a good job of yeah. solving something and you're right. a 501c3 in nature, you're going to go away. But I also think that if you're in the future, if you're a for-profit, that is not serving a true purpose in the well-being yep. and lives of others. You'll, mm-hmm. You will you'll disappear. And so I think the, the future of business is truthfully 
what I call for purpose. And you can be nonprofit or for profit by designation. Yep. But if you're not fundamentally in existence to solve a problem rather than mm-hmm. to make money, I, I just mm-hmm. think where society is going, you just will not continue to succeed. I love I love that phrase yeah. and I love that distinction, Adam. That's fantastic. Yeah. Let me ask yeah. you a question though. So. Uh, and I'm very curious to know your personal opinion about this, both of your personal opinions about this, Joe and Adam. Mm-hmm. So when you set out to do this, you saw this kid that did not have an education and all he wanted was a pencil. Why did you decide to start your own nonprofit slash for purpose organization versus joining forces with somebody who is already doing that? Yep. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I would say two reasons. One, is that I genuinely could not find an organization that operated the way that I wanted one to operate. Um, you know, I, I spend, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of people, when they, they hear my story, they think that I, you know, this request for a pencil from this boy, and then suddenly I started the organization. It was actually mm-hmm. four years right. in between when I was 21 and I got this request, and then as I was turning 25, I started the organization. Um, during that period, I backpacked through like 40, 50 countries, spent time with, you know, easily a dozen um, world-class NGOs of all sizes and all different types, really trying to learn what the best practice model would look like for mm-hmm. implementation in the field. And then I came back and I worked at Bain. And, and while you're at Bain, you know, you, you have exposure to the top leading nonprofits um, or for-focus organizations around the country. Mm-hmm. And I just found that there tended to be two types of organizations. There was kind of the small mom and pop ones in the field that did the best quality work couldn't scale and were never really run all that efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had the uh, kind of bigger players that were institutional in nature who run very well, had a lot of capital, but they always took a top-down approach. They weren't willing to kind of go into the community and start mm-hmm. small and then gain, you know, trust and ownership. They always started at high-level governments because they were really well financed. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to create a hybrid of the two, something that brought the best of for-profit business acumen into the space, but at the same time kind of operated with the heart of you know, a grassroots idealist, a mm-hmm. traditional NGO. Mm-hmm. And so, so part of it was that I couldn't find anything that did what I wanted to do. And then the second is, I'm just like an entrepreneurial spirit. I like creating things and building things. And truthfully, um, most entrepreneurs don't like reporting it to other people. They, they like crafting a vision and then going and executing it against the odds and the expectations of others. And mm-hmm. just by my nature, um, if I found something that I wanted to be a part of, um, I, and I did, I, you know, I worked with different organizations that eventually... Um, I felt confident that it was time to kind of take a leap and try and build something on my own that could not only transform the lives of the kids that we serve, but ultimately the goal is really to push the space forward um, mm-hmm. and to impact organizations beyond our own. So is that why is that why you think your organization has done so well, Adam, and grown so much is because it filled a need, it filled a niche in the marketplace of, of what organizations were looking for? I mean, are there other things that you point to, like, social media or other types of things that have helped really grow your organization? Yeah. I mean, so, so one of the things that I talk about in in the book, I kind of referenced the famous Wayne Gretzky quote that you don't skate to where the puck is, you skate to where it's going. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that to build anything that's going to grow quickly, you ultimately, you you have to have a pretty high tolerance for risk Mm -hmm. and you have to make a conscious decision that you think that uh, the world or the environment or the market or the ambitions or desires or needs of individuals is going to move to a certain place and then try and position yourself there before the world is there yet. Mm-hmm. And so my, my two big kind of early, I would say, bets were one on the rise of digital and social media. So I started mm-hmm. in, in 2008 before really any nonprofits were on, like crowdsourcing wasn't that big a deal. The only person who had done it well was Obama. 
So mm-hmm. every time I tried to describe my approach, people were like, oh, you're doing that Obama thing. <laughs> um, and, and so, so part of it was using digital and social because I was Mark Zuckerberg in college when he started um, Facebook at Harvard in the sophomore class. I was a, a sophomore at Brown, so we were one of the 10 schools. Oh. Um, so we were beta testers for all the early social platforms. So oh, wow. I was yeah. like one of the first ones to use this. And then the second thing was um, just the kind of calculated bet on the rise of cause marketing that mm-hmm. major brands would recognize that given this for-purpose ideology that people would be more likely to support a great brand yep. if they were associated with a great cause. And That's so, right. you mm-hmm. know, and, and I thought, all right, well, marketing is going to move to a place where it's all based on digital and social. So mm-hmm. if we can have one of the largest followings, then when these great companies go out to create cause marketing campaigns, we can probably get a lot of funding through that. Mm-hmm. And so fortunately, that's what ended up happening about two years in, in 2010 and 2011, we started to get a lot of corporate support. And now, um, it's, it's truthfully, it's time for us to iterate again. Mm-hmm. And as much as I can set out a plan and say, we're going to build a thousand schools by 2017 and do a capital campaign, I actually think education is changing a lot. And, and I want us to be at the fore again, and that requires risk. And so that's where we're launching what we call a series of innovation pilots across this year. Um, mm-hmm. to test out really what the future of education could look like and, and pilot that across our classrooms around the world. Wow, that's great. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the corporate partnership piece. I do want to talk about sort of where you're heading too because it sounds fascinating, but because we talk a lot about par- corporate partnerships on the show, can you tell us a yeah. little bit more about your corporate par- partnerships? Did that, I mean, it sounds like brands did jump on like you assumed that they would but what what does that contribute to your organization and how do you use your corporate partners to move your mission forward sure so so there's two i mean there's two obvious ways the first one is capital uh Uh we get significant funding and then the second one is uh awareness right like those are the two big things that most ngos really care about um and so and, and the third i would almost say is brand positioning Mm-hmm. Um, a perception of elevation of the organization because mm-hmm. of the association that we have. You know, we've been yep. funded by uh, Google and AOL as a partner on media campaigns. And at the same time, um, let's see, Delta sponsors flights for us. Um, mm-hmm. British Airways has done flight sponsorship through a contest that, that um, we participated in. But at the same time, I try and identify us very, very closely with either A-plus grade-level brands or um, the hottest rising startups in, in uh, the entrepreneurial space. And so that mm-hmm. means uh, doing collaborations with Warby Parker, doing collaborations mm-hmm. with Birchbox, um, you know, building out significant campaign with Chegg. So, so I'll, I'll speak about Chegg just really quickly. But now we, we do three big campaigns a year. One is uh, for graduation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really about highlighting teachers and our teacher training program. Uh, the second is back to school. That's about highlighting students and our student scholarship program. And then the third is holiday, and that's about um, highlighting school builds and, and getting more schools funded for the following year. And uh, when we do back to school, at least uh, this past year, I can speak for it. Chegg came in. Um, they the largest textbook provider to college students around the country. They had previously run a campaign to build their personal awareness uh, with Taylor Swift. So, like, mm-hmm. biggest star out, you know, really positive imagery. Mm-hmm. You would think that that would drive a ton of engagement, and it did. But what we did uh, with our Back to School campaign is they came in for a six-figure commitment, mm-hmm. uh, so significant impact right there. Um, and what we were able to say was individual, two things. One, go out and create your own fundraising campaign to help um, provide scholarships for students through Pencil of Promise. On this certain day, every single dollar that you raise, JEG will match. Uh, and so that galvanized individual fundraisers to raise more money while getting greater exposure to JEG because every time yep. someone donated, it said JEG is not matches. 
But more importantly, what we found is that a lot of young people don't feel like they can actually make a difference because they don't have money. And we wanted to rectify for that. Yep. And so what we did is, um, you guys familiar with hashtag TBT, like throwback Thursdays? Yep. Uh, so, you know, one thing that one of our board members, Dave Vaynerchuk, talks a lot about in the media is um, you ride the existing hashtags, not trying to do your own. Um, and so what we did is we partnered with Chegg and we, through this back to school campaign, came up with hashtag give back to school. And we said over the course of X many weeks, anyone who posts a photo of themselves uh, going back to school uh, with the hashtag give back to school, and especially we would push it out on TVT, you know, Thursdays because people are always already posting mm-hmm. throwbacks to themselves. Chegg will donate $10 on your behalf. And then we had um, an API that takes all the photos into our launch page. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, engagement for Chegg was significantly higher through that campaign without a single celebrity than the Taylor Swift campaign. Really? Mm-hmm. And so, yes. And so, so the key that, that I drew from that is, is one, for NGOs um, in this space, nonprofit or for-purpose organizations, it's really important to build um, campaigns or assets that lead to you being able to earn money, not ask for money. Because you have to ask for money and never lead to the fundraising process. But when we look at our digital media following, which now is across platforms around uh, probably close to a million people, that's a valuable marketing asset. And that leads Absolutely. us to say no to probably 90% of the marketing partnerships that come to us. Mm-hmm. You know, every day, a new company, a new startup, can we do this? We'll give a portion of proceeds to Pencil of Promise. And our response is, yeah, we would love for you to do that, but we are not going to market this to mm-hmm. our following unless you make a firm commitment. Mm-hmm. at X dollar level yep, yep. Right? because we're not, an, I mean, yes, we're a nonprofit by, by, you know, technical tax terms, but mm-hmm. I'm interested in creating as much social impact as possible. And just like any great for-profit, I can't do that unless you commit to certain yep. X capital if we're going to provide this asset in return. Well, you know, Adam, so the truth is really you really got something you can leverage. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, right, I mean, right. you know, you know, who's a, you know, what that reminds me of too is uh, do something.org. Totally. I mean, they have over oh, 2 yeah. million subscribers uh, to their to their uh, mobile lists. Yeah, to their mobile list. And so, I yep. mean, you know, that's something that's a real asset that they use. And, you know, they're not, they're a little bit different in that they're not committed to any one campaign. Um, but, you know, they definitely leverage that to do a lot of good. So, so just so you know, their CEO, Nancy Lovelin, is one of my closest friends and mentors in the space. And when we <laughs> needed a COO, she knew me obviously very well and um, said very kindly to me, you know, our, our number three who uh, runs our business development, oversees our marketing partnerships, as wonderful as she is, uh, we have an existing COO who's also great. And, and um, I know that she's interested in finding a COO role somewhere. There's mm-hmm. no one I'd rather um, she work with than you. Um, and so feel free to, to contact. I've already talked to her about it, which was just incredibly generous of Nancy. Oh, um, and so our yeah. COO is, is the former head of um, business development and overseas marketing partnerships. Really? So that's oh. really, that's really formed a lot of our strategy. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, you know, I think your organization, I think do something and other organizations really reflect though, the importance of, you know, nonprofits having marketable assets that they can use yeah. to woo cor- corporate partners. And I think that's the, you know, the, I think that's the organization of the future, Adam. I agree. Oh, I yeah. totally agree. I mean, I think that the idea that the only way that you're going to fundraise is by finding wealthy people and asking them to write their checks um, mm-hmm. is, is becoming rapidly obsolete. No. Um, no. And, I mean, you know, that's, I, that's the channel. That's, that's yeah. a fundraising opportunity. But if you don't have a multi-pronged strategy, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just going to be very difficult to grow in the, the yeah. modern environment where, where donors are, one, they're more fickle. Yeah. Uh, two, there's about to be a massive transfer of generational wealth. And that generational yeah. wealth is being transferred to millennials. And they look at the world different. I mean, we do. I'm, not, I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm much more likely to respond to um, a nonprofit by tax status that operates like a great business mm-hmm. than one that shows me sad commercials and tries to be all the time. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, it, you know what it is? It's, it's Adam. It's an organization that gets stuff done. Yeah. 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 You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I think that's what we all want and what we all don't have an intolerance for. Even people, baby boomers like Megan, she's so old. <laughs> that's funny, Joe. <laughs> Considering you're older than I am, that's funny. I, I, just I, won't, publicly, yeah, I, mean, I, I won't publicly reveal your age, though. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think the big difference that I'm, I'm hoping we're going to see is people starting to care a lot more about um, outcomes rather than outputs. Right. Yeah. So, for, for example, you know, uh, us building 200 schools, that's just shiny and, and and people say, wow, that's really great. But it actually doesn't inform you at all about the performance of our students. Right. And so, the, but, but the space thus far hasn't been asked that question. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's good enough when you make a donation and you get your confirmation, you feel like you've done good in the world, but oftentimes you haven't unless that organization has then used those dollars to improve somebody's lives. Yeah. Like and so, more proud of is that um, we track a ton of data in our communities, and kids that are in classrooms with our teacher training outperform peer communities three to one on test scores. Or in rural Ghana, thirty to forty percent of kids progress um, from primary to secondary school, where we have our scholarship programs in places ninety-seven percent. Mm-hmm. Like wow. those, those are the much more important numbers. And, and truthfully, I think the space is going to move to a place where. Outputs are great. They're, they're always going to um, compel people emotionally. But when it comes to significant capital investment, that's going to come as a product outcome. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has all been so, so fascinating. And I don't know about you guys, but I am definitely interested in reading the book. Adam, yep. where can people find out more about you and more about your book and your organization? Sure. So uh, I'm personally always on Twitter. Uh, at Adam Braun, B-R-A-U-N. My website is just adambraun.com where I put up blogs and you can learn a lot more there as well as um, a couple of different speeches that I've given over time. Uh, the organization is pencilsofpromise.org. Would love for you to get involved. You can start with as little as $25, just like I did. I began by uh, giving up my birthday, asking for contributions instead, and that's what helped launch the first school. So you can obviously do the same or create any um, unique fundraising campaign there. We've had more than 30,000 people do so on the site. Wow. And then the book is available at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any of your local retailers uh, called The Promise of a Pencil, How an Ordinary Person Can Create Extraordinary Change and Provides a Guiding Step to Create a Life of Success and Significance. And I hope you guys will enjoy it. Excellent. Yeah. We'll put, definitely put those in our show notes. Joe, where can people find more about you online? Well, of course, people can find me at my blog, SelfishGiving.com. You can find me on Twitter with Adam and Megan, at Joe Waters. And, of course, check out my cause marketing uh, Pinterest boards at Pinterest.com, front slash Joe Waters. What about you, Megan? Where can people find you? I'm also on Twitter at Megan Strand, and I tweet for the Cause Marketing Forum at TweetCMF. And I also blog for the Cause Marketing Forum at CauseUpdate.com. And you can find Cause Talk Radio on Stitcher Smart Radio as well as iTunes. We do ask that you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. And on behalf of Adam and Joe and myself, we'd like to thank you for joining us this time for Cause Talk Radio. And we'll see you next time. 